listening to The Bulletin, the podcast from the St. Andrew's Economist. My name is Elliot Vavitsis. Today I'm speaking with Jack Horgan about the true meaning of global burden. Jack, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So uh, I read your article and there's some really interesting points you bring up. So uh, there's been a lot of uh, flurry, I guess, in the past, past maybe five years, you could even say, but more, more recently um, around what is global burden and what is Britain's place in the world after the referendum that Britain held on Brexit. So uh, one of the things that you brought up in your article was about Britain's participation in the recently signed AUKUS uh, treaty between the United States, Australia and itself. Um, you, in your article, you talked about how, you know, it doesn't really make sense from the British perspective. There's a, a, a lot of questions to be answered, but why would you say that is? I think that in some respects, it does make sense for Britain to be a part of it. It's an Anglophone alliance. They have close ties to both Australia and to the United States. I think the more pressing question is why Britain feels the need to get involved in the Indo-Pacific. Because AUKUS is not an isolated incident. They've also applied to join uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, which is an economic bloc in the region, um, whereas they are uh, not even a Pacific nation. So I think it kind of shows how Britain is seeking to get more involved um, after its withdrawal from the European Union. Mm-hmm. And would you say that it's... Why, why would Britain want to do this, though? Because obviously leaving the EU did take away somewhat of, uh, you know, Britain's foreign policy proposition in the world pre-Brexit was the fact that it's an Anglophone state that was the bridge between continental Europe and the superpower of the world, the United States. Now it probably doesn't fulfill that role very well anymore. And even the article you mentioned that, uh, you know, the U.S. is looking close to with closer ties with Germany, maybe even France, France now uh, after 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 the UK's exit from the bloc. But why would the UK think that if they, if it orients its policies, policies on, foreign, on the foreign calculus towards the Indo-Pacific, they can be just as effective? Well, I think a lot of it is tied up with the prime minister personally. Um, okay. Because Boris Johnson, I mean, here's a man who, when he was a kid, said he wanted to be king of the world. Uh, he's written a biography of Churchill. And if you look at his foreign policy, it's very similar to Churchill, to Disraeli, where he sees Britain as a very global power, a superpower. Mm -hmm. And I think he's trying to reclaim that um, by focusing uh, British policy into regions where Britain hasn't really broached before. Normally, they've just kind of left it to the U.S. And so by doing this, by trying to get more involved in AUKUS and the TPP, um, he's even applied to join the USMCA, um, NAFTA's successor. Right. He's trying to kind of tread new territory and mm-hmm. go where no prime minister has gone in a long time. That's that's true. That's that's a good point. And but is it even productive? I know you spoke, uh, sorry, wrote a, a little bit about how uh, you know Russia was the threat that UK policymakers identified as the largest threat to Britain's existence as a state. What well, what would you say to that? I say that the operative word there is that UK policymakers identified. Mm. A lot of Britain, is, or a lot of British policy, is still postured at combating Russia, mm-hmm. um, much like uh, the US's policy was. Um, the US never quite got over the Cold War, and so a lot of its policy was still focused towards Europe. And you see that with Britain too. Right. Um, around the mid half of his first term, former President Obama launched what he called a pivot to Asia. 
um, where he was starting to look eastward uh, and focusing more on combating China rather than the European theater. I think right now Johnson is attempting to do the same thing, um, kind of updating uh, Britain uh, from beyond a kind of Cold War stasis that it's been in for a while. That's interesting. Uh, and also, I, I think the, the role of the United States, perhaps, in this, and, you know, we speak about AUKUS and we speak of British foreign policy and where does Britain orient itself in, in, the, global, in the global arena is quite crucial. Would you not, would you not say that? Um, I yeah, I absolutely believe it's mm-hmm. crucial. Yeah, yeah. and I, I, I was I want I'm going into that. I'd like to ask ask you is that you know now the United States has even pivoted is pivoting to Asia, and yet you know Boris Johnson, like you said, it's very personal. His uh, his uh, his uh, so his desire to associate the United Kingdom with the Indo Pacific. Uh, would would you say that he might be? Uh, Miss, missing the missing the missing the mark, for example, the fact that he wants to emphasize a special relationship with the United States, but also pivot to Asia, uh, or does the special relationship that you know policymakers have like to talk about in the United Kingdom with the United States still come into play with a pivot to Asia for the UK? It absolutely does, and a lot of uh, British policy has been associated closely with the United States, mm-hmm. which raises the question um, that France raised when it learned about AUKUS. Is Britain an equal partner of the United States in this region, or is it acting as a sidekick? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Johnson absolutely would like to think that it's an equal partner, um, but currently it's unclear how equal Britain can be. It's not a superpower. Uh, it's not the United States' is equal in terms of population, wealth, or military. And so I think by attempting to insert Britain into a bunch of uh, regional agreements, uh, Johnson is trying to bridge that gap a little bit. Right. So, and maybe that speaks to the modern uh, construction of of power between states. So, uh, I, I I know I know that for 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 example that you know when you talked a lot about how you know Trans-Pacific partnership, uh, NAFTA, or sorry, not NAFTA, USMCA, the successor NAFTA, Boris Johnson has all, has made news around trying to stick Britain into those, into those, into those partnerships, but, and, and we could say maybe that's the modern construction of power, but would you say maybe there's even a historical, historical motivation to, for Britain to insert itself into the, uh, into the partnerships, trade partnerships of the, the global sphere, the global arena? Absolutely. I mean, you look at the 19th century, Britain was kind of the hegemon. Yeah. Um, and it's lost that over the past, you know, 150 years. Mm-hmm. And so I think that in, in 2016, you saw a huge nationalist spike when they withdrew from the EU. Right. And I think that to try to claim a quote-unquote global Britain while also kind of living in the shadow of that nationalism is a difficult bridge to walk. And so I think by inserting himself or inserting Britain into various regional partnership partnerships, Johnson's trying to show, hey, look, we aren't nationalists. We're still involved in the world, just not in the way that we were before. Like I said, it's a tough tightrope to walk, and yeah. I'm not sure how successful he is at doing it. Well, of course, only time will tell that. But also what's uh, interesting about, about that is, you know, you know uh, if you look... Maybe, maybe not so much. Uh, now we're, you know, uh, uh, somewhat deep into the Biden presidency. Mm-hmm. But the the United the United States. I think you argued this as well. The United States has lost a bit of its prestige as the, you know, 
beacon on the top of the hill for liberal democracy to for all of the sta- states to aspire to. So even though the United States is the undisputed hegemon of the world, is there maybe a niche for Britain in terms of upholding the values of liberal democracy around the world? Exactly. I, I think that the most important power Britain has right now is its example. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are very few niches that Britain can fill that the United States cannot. I think the most uh, obvious is climate. A mm-hmm. uh, hundred kilometers from where we're sitting, uh, the COP22 conference, or COP26 conference is going on in Glasgow. Um, the United States showed up with nothing on its plate, which is an embarrassment. Britain is hosting it, and mm-hmm. it has a tremendous role to play there. But um, as you said before, I think its second most important quality is its history as kind of the cradle of democracy. Um, Johnson has not been a particularly good steward of that tradition, but I think if he wanted to turn that around, he absolutely could and show Britain as an example of how to be a liberal democracy. Well, that's that's a very very good point you raise, and also uh, as an example of liberal demo- of a liberal democracy. You know, when we look at you know the power state p- states possess, uh, you know, that's a very clear distinction between hard and soft power. Is global Britain perhaps would it be more effective as a a uh, foreign policy idea through soft power rather than hard power, which is maybe what Boris Johnson and the current government of the United Kingdom is trying to do. Absolutely. Um, I mean, Britain, uh, British soft power is immense. I would say far more than some of its continental rivals like Germany or France. Part of that is a benefit of the English language, and part of that is just it has a very pervasive culture. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's that's true. Uh, you know, all, I think all all around the world we know people speak English. People come to St Andrews to study. It's an English speaking university. Uh, that's but the the uh, the other thing about uh, British soft power is that and you know going back to you know point we ta- you were talking about earlier about Russia and all that. Well, the United Kingdom may want to project soft power. Issues that may be relating to hard power might be more closer to home. So, for example, you know, the news cycle here in the United Kingdom and in continental Europe has really uh, closely covered the effects of Russia's gas diplomacy on, uh, you know, the, the winter energy supply all over Europe and the, in the United in the in the United United Kingdom. So, is that that's one example of you know where the United Kingdom might want to focus on hard hard power in order to you know hard power. But again, um, I think and I think. I think, and I, and I, would you say you agree with the fact that we're in this kind of transitionary period, especially with the COVID nineteen pandemic, of where you know what constitutes hard and soft power between states is changing, and is maybe global burden a, a response to that at an even higher level that you know no one in the media is talking about? I think that's a very good point. I, I think that uh, right now British hard power is, I would say, declining, mm-hmm. at least relatively to other powers. Um, and so by focusing on its soft power, it, it can find a niche for itself that it's otherwise been lacking. Yeah. Well, it's also the Indo-Pacific, going back to you know, the pretense for what you wrote about, uh, is, could you even say it's maybe, a, for Britain at least, a, a, great, a, great, a great distraction? Because, you know, uh, if you, if you, if you, I think uh, when, I, when I read your article and when I was doing some research for this episode of the podcast, I came across a chart that talked about, you know, if you looked at, I think from before, just before 9-11 and then to now, 
what countries in Europe's major trading partners were. Before it was, majority of them would trade with the United States. Yeah. Majority of them now trade with China. But the United Kingdom, interestingly enough, is the one holdout that trades more with the United States than it does with, uh, with China. So, so is, and, and, and if so, if you're maybe a nation like Germany or France or Italy who do trade a bit more with, uh, I'm not sure about France, but I think Germany and Italy are definitely good examples, trade a lot more with China now than they do with the United States. Uh, is is perhaps the Indo-Pacific is more of a pressing issue in disregard, I guess, how government those governments have decided to deal with it. But for the United Kingdom, the the United States is uh, at least as a as a partner and as a partner and a trading partner is and the Atlantic sphere is much more relevant to them than Indo-Pacific. So, I mean, would you say there's an argument there for you know the Indo-Pacific is just a great distraction to glo- the idea of global Britain? I think that part of it is that the Britain cannot do much without the United States. The United States is Britain's most powerful ally. And so that's where we get the term, the special relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, a term which Johnson, by the way, hates. He makes Interesting. He <laughs> believes that it makes Britain sound kind of cloying second fiddle. And so he plays this delicate balance of trying to preach global politics, uh, or I'm sorry, global Britain, yeah. um, while at the same time, you know, eschewing, uh, eschewing uh, the links to the United States. Mm-hmm. So he needs the links to the United States, but he doesn't like to admit it. So I also want to go back to the idea of the, the links to the United States. And so uh, if, the, if, the, if the United States is pivoting to Asia, like we discussed, mm-hmm. and uh, China is this, China and Indo-Pacific is a bit of a, a, dis- a distraction. So obviously, what you've kind of set up the argument of is there's a, there's a, there's a specific niche for Britain. I I, I I think you'd agree with me when I say that. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. There's there is a specific niche, but what does that look like from a policy perspective? How how do you how do you take advantage of these very uh, multi multi multipolar uh, global happenings right now if you're Britain? Mm-hmm. So I think one is that the EU, um, while you know a bloc that does a lot of good for its member states can be a bit unwieldy. Uh, for instance, you see this with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. It's di- uh, the pipeline from Russia to Europe supplying them gas. It's difficult for people in the EU um, to criticize or comment on that. Britain has much more freedom uh, to do what it would like in that regard. Um, like I said before, climate. Um, the United States has really dropped the ball when it comes to climate. And Britain is picking it up. I mean, Britain is leading by example in terms of climate, um, especially by hosting COP twenty, uh, COP twenty six right now in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. And lastly, as I said before, Britain is the world's oldest democracy. They are the cradle of the world's democracy, uh, especially in Europe. And um, despite kind of moving away from that with you know uh, Nigel Farage, UKIP. Uh, there is still room for Britain to kind of grow that tradition um, and spread it around the world, or at least be an example of it. Right. Well, that's true, and especially the what, especially um, uh, I think I think what's what's that's a good point you bring up because perhaps the you know in the United States with the government shutdowns and mm-hmm. a lot of bickering between the two houses and different Congress 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 members and members of the Senate. Perhaps the West, the Westminster system, is a more more effective, uh, more effective model. That, that's an entire different discussion. <laughs> discussion. If we went, if we went, if we went there, I don't, I don't think we'd, uh, we, 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 we don't think we'd stop talking, talking for a very long time. Uh, but 
what what else I was I was uh, think thinking about is uh, you know as 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 a is the UK a if the, if the UK wants to be global Britain, mm-hmm. but also wants to well even if Boris Johnson hates hates it, which is funny because I, I remember his campaign. I think global Britain was in a few sound bites at least <laughs> from his campaign yeah. to become prime minister. Uh, but you know if if the UK is wants to be global Britain, but also wants to be in the special relationship relationship relationship. Sorry. Um, also wants to have this sort of love-hate relationship right now, at least, with the European continent, you know, is, is it even a, Euro, a European na- nation from a foreign policy and even ec- economic, economic standpoint? Because, yes, it trades a lot with the continent, but it aligns itself with, you know, the United States and, you know, sees itself, at least, like you argued, having key interests in the Indo-Pacific. Where, 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 does, where, where does the UK itself even see where it fits in? And isn't even maybe a bit confused? Like I said, there's a pernicious nostalgia in the UK that kind of makes it see itself as, you know, this British exceptionalism. Um, Whether or not it sees itself as European is another question. Certainly it's Atlanticist, it's Western. Um, And I think that now, especially with the pivot to Asia, Western matters a lot more than it did before. It's a liberal democracy and... um, in the upcoming, you know, bipolar world, because there will be more conflicts between America and China, um, it's a pretty safe bet where Britain will reside in that mm-hmm. conflict on new side. Yeah, well, that's true. But also, is would you say the? I mean, obviously, if if you use the analogy of a of a bet, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, is is Britain? Is Britain, uh, is Britain playing 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 its cards right? Would you even say because you know if you look at countries like Germany, for example, who yeah. I think you talked about in your article about Germany being maybe a better European partner now for the United States in the United Kingdom, United Kingdom, uh, you know Germany, for example, is and, and Angela Merkel specifically has you know tried to play both sides. So increasing China, uh, sorry, German investment in China, making sure, making sure China can trade freely with Germany and Mm -hmm. especially because Germany's auto industry has quite a big uh, portfolio of holdings in China and sells a lot of cars there. Uh, But also, you know, Germany hosts uh, NATO troops. It's, it's a, it's a key part of, I guess, the, you know, idea of defending Europe from whatever threats may May, may, may arise. It's 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 because Germany is becoming more deeply integrated with China, but China somewhat by choice, but is also, you know, solidifying its links to you know the United States and the Western order. So that's an interesting way because of bridging the you know if if if, if, if states are gamblers, <laughs> uh, you know you know betting on both sides, right? So yeah. Who's going to come on top is and now I think logically, like you argue, Britain Britain has to bet on the United States, but. But other, but but why 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 not why not bet on both sides of Britain? Why why like what 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 why does Britain think it has to has to have an all or nothing approach, especially considering its diminished role in the world stage? Well, I think that its diminished role in the world stage is exactly why it's kind of going all in on one side. I see. Because if you look at China, it doesn't have many allies, um, and so especially in the region. Um, and especially in the region, uh, China's allies are you know very few, and so if the Britain wants to have a good relationship uh, with many other countries in the world, 
um, it's safer to cast its lot with the current hegemon, one who has this kind of hub-and-spoke web of alliances that Britain can kind of butt its way into, rather than China, who has very few friends. Right. Well, that, that's, that, that, that's, that's, that's a good point. And I guess if, if you know, the West is to maintain its hegemony, and, you know, I, I think, you, would you agree, I guess you'd agree with me with saying that, you know, there is obviously a great power conflict brewing mm-hmm. across the entire Entire, entire, entire world. I guess it's best for best, best for Britain to, you know, put put its put its lot in with who who's who's going to shape that next order. And especially looking at you know perhaps the United States is a little bit declining. But if the United States can, you know, success successfully keep China, you know, away from its hegemon position, there's always a role for Britain in some sort of niche that may be more expanded in a more. Uh, I guess a, a realigned world order that may result from whatever conflict ensues. So, but but with that, uh, thank you for coming on the sh- on the show. I really appreciate you uh, speaking with me today. It was really good. And uh, for our listeners, we'll be back next week with a another episode of the Bulletin by the St. Andrews Economist. Thank you. Mm-hmm.